Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. WLCC Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Online at letstalkfaith.com. Or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre recorded. God initially called Abraham while he was living in Ur of the Chaldeans in Mesopotamia. That's when he first called him. And in response to this divine call, Abraham and his father Terah and his wife Sarah and his nephew Lot, they left Ur for the land of Canaan. But for some reason that scripture does not explain, while en route to Canaan, they settled for a time in the city of Haran where Abraham's father Terah died. Today on our verse-by-verse broadcast, we are going to meet Abraham's family. Perhaps you're already familiar with the names Terah, Haran, Lot, and the fact that they all used to live in Ur of the Chaldeans. Let me encourage you to pay close attention to these names because there will be a quiz at the end of today's broadcast. Our teacher is the pastor of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. His name is Steve Kreloff. We are studying in Acts chapters 6 through 8 about Stephen's defense in front of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Much like they did with Jesus, Stephen was accused of many things that were false and also had his words twisted by lying witnesses. So let's get into today's verse-by-verse broadcast and meet the family of Abraham. Terah took Abram his son, Terah is his father. He took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran. Haran, by the way, was not only Abraham's brother, the town of Haran is named after him. So he took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans, that would be Mesopotamia, in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Now the Bible makes it clear, as I said earlier, that the city that in Mesopotamia where Abraham originally lived was called Ur of the Chaldeans, which by the way today is modern day southern Iraq. But we read that Abraham left Ur and he settled for a time in a town called Haran, a town named after his brother. And it was here while living in this town called Haran that Genesis 12 says God called him to leave and go to the land of Canaan. So the question is, was Stephen wrong as some 
critics say. When Stephen said that God called Abraham while he was in Ur in Mesopotamia because Genesis 12 says that he called him when he was living in Haran. And the answer is no, Stephen was not wrong. He did not make a sincere but inaccurate historical statement. The Bible is absolutely true. Listen, we know that Stephen spoke the truth because according to Acts chapter 6, verse 5, Stephen was a man filled with the Holy Spirit, meaning he was under the Spirit of God's control. And in Acts 6.15, we read his face shone with the radiance of an angel, meaning that he glowed with the Shekinah glory of one who had been in God's presence. And according to Acts 7.55, Stephen was still filled with the Holy Spirit just prior to being stoned to death. So giving this whole speech, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. So it's obvious that what Stephen said about the timing of Abraham's call was under the guidance of the Spirit of God, the control of the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God makes no mistakes. So how do we reconcile Stephen's account and the Genesis account? Well, actually, we reconcile it quite easily. It's not that hard. It happened just as Stephen said it happened. God initially called Abraham while he was living in Ur of the Chaldeans in Mesopotamia. That's when he first called him. And in response to this divine call, Abraham and his father Terah and his wife Sarah and his nephew Lot, they left Ur for the land of Canaan. But for some reason, that scripture does not explain, while en route to Canaan, they settled for a time in the city of Haran, where Abraham's father Terah died. And it was sometime after this, after Terah's death, while Abraham was still living in Haran, that God repeated his call to him to proceed to the land of Canaan. So Stephen is correct and Genesis is correct. Listen, there are no historical errors or discrepancies in the Bible. Now there may appear from our standpoint, to be discrepancies. But that's all they are. From our standpoint, God is a God of truth. And he does not speak error. And his word is true. And his word is totally consistent and in harmony. So when you don't understand something in the Bible, or it looks like the Bible is asserting something that is contradictory, it's important that you give God the benefit of the doubt, and you submit yourself and submit your mind to the authority of Scripture. Listen, you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to have it all figured out. But you do need, like a child, to trust God and His Word at all times, even when you don't understand something. In due time, the Lord may give you understanding, if not in this lifetime, certainly in glory. So don't worry about it. Trust in the Lord. Now, the second thing I want to point out to you about God's call to Abraham is that according to Stephen, the God of glory, notice this, he appeared, Stephen said, to Abraham. Now, this is something we didn't know before. Why didn't we know this before? Because Genesis 12 only tells us that God spoke to Abraham, but Stephen says he appeared to him. And why is this important? Why am I even bringing this out? Why did Stephen state this? Because it's foundational to his argument that God isn't limited to dwelling in a temple in the land of Israel. You see, what Stephen wants the Sanhedrin to realize is that God, when he called Abraham, wasn't in the promised land. He wasn't in the land of Canaan. He wasn't in the land of Israel shouting across the desert, His call to Abraham, come over here. 
You're in Mesopotamia. I'm here. Come over here, Abraham. No, when the God of glory called Abraham, Stephen wants us to know he was right there where Abraham was. He appeared to him smack in the middle of a land of pagan idolatry. And that, folks, is very significant because the Jewish people of Stephen's day had a serious misconception about God and the temple that was at that time standing in the city of Jerusalem. See, God had said in the Old Testament, in ancient biblical times, that he would dwell in his temple and that he would put his name in his temple. This is why the temple has always been so important to the Jewish people, because It was in the temple where God manifested his presence on earth. And it was in the temple where God revealed his holy will and his holy character. This is why David could pray as he did in Psalm 27 verse 4. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. That's the temple. All the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. But the Jewish people took this truth of God's presence in the temple to mean that that was the only place, only place that God dwelt on earth to the point where they believed that he was confined to the temple, almost imprisoned there, that his activities were limited to the temple. And that's Stephen's point in talking about Abraham's call to Mesopotamia because by stating that the God of glory appeared to Abraham in a pagan land, is to say that God is not restricted to one place on earth, but rather that he moves and he acts beyond the human building that has a set location. Therefore, Stephen's purpose in saying all of this is to answer the charge made against them that he has blasphemed God by speaking about how temporary and limited the temple in Jerusalem was. In other words, he's telling them, it's a bogus charge. This charge against me is false. And God's call of Abraham in a pagan land where there was no temple proves it. So how does all this apply to us? How is this possibly relevant to us today? Well, it may surprise you to know that this is quite relevant. Very applicable because while the temple is no longer in existence, there are still many people today who think that they can only worship God in a specific place a specific location, be it a shrine, a church, a sanctuary, a synagogue, a mosque, or in the great outdoors. But that's so wrong because God, the Bible says, is omnipresent, meaning that he's everywhere and therefore he can and he should be worshiped anywhere his people are, anywhere where you are, anywhere where I am. Listen, I remember on one of my earliest trips to Israel thinking how easy it would be to fall into the mistaken belief that somehow being in the land of the Bible made me closer to God and that my worship of him was more meaningful here in the Holy Land. In other words, I thought I could be more holy in the Holy Land. That's not true at all. It's not true at all. And Jesus actually addressed this very issue in John chapter 4 during a conversation that he had with a Samaritan woman. Samaritans were a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, and they were really quite pagan, though they took a little bit of Judaism. They believed a little bit of the Bible, but not the whole Old Testament. Listen to what Jesus said in this conversation. John chapter 4, starting in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, 
And you people, by you people he means you Jewish people, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship, meaning you Samaritans, worship what you do not know. We worship, meaning we Jews, what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worship. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, let's just go back. I didn't read all this, but what led up to this is that Jesus spoke to this woman about her sordid marital past. He said, go tell your husband. And then he made it clear to her. He said, I know you've been married five times, and the man you're now living with, he's not your husband. So apparently she became very uncomfortable with this. He was getting a little too close to her sin. And so she decided to change the subject as people tend to do in those situations. And she put on the appearance of being very religious. We won't talk about my sin. We'll talk about my religious inclinations. So she asked Jesus about which location is the right location to worship God. The mountain where we Samaritans say we worship God or the temple in Jerusalem where you Jews say it's right to worship God. And the Lord's answer to her is that it doesn't matter where you worship God. It's irrelevant. The only thing that matters is that you worship him based on the truth about him as revealed in the scriptures. And that you have the right heart, spirit, attitude in your worship. In fact, Jesus was really alluding to the fact that in a few short years, the temple in Jerusalem would be gone. It would be destroyed. It'd be torn down by the Romans so that no one should get hung up on any specific location to worship God. What is important to the Father is that those who worship him base their worship on truth. They're not worshiping in ignorance and that they worship him in spirit, meaning the right heart attitude. It's not just words. It's your motive. It's your heart. Where they worship him is irrelevant. Listen, make sure that you have not compartmentalized your life so that you think that your worship on Sunday mornings in our church is more significant than your worship of God at other times and in other places. God is to be worshiped wherever you are. And it's to be worshipped by you praising him, by you thanking him throughout the day, by you singing songs to him, if not out loud, then certainly in your head. You dishonor God if you limit your worship of him to Sunday mornings in this building. Hebrews 13, 15 says, through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips that give thanks to him. The writer says we are to worship God continuously throughout the day, not only on Sunday mornings. In Romans 12:1, Paul says that our worship is the offering of ourselves to God in any place and at any time. He said in Romans 12:1, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, I'm urging you based on how kind God has been to you, to present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which he says is your spiritual service of worship. So may the Lord use this truth to remind you to consciously worship God throughout your day, in those spare moments when you are not engaged in something else and you can focus on him Worship him, thank him, praise him. 
Don't wait until Sunday morning to worship him in church. As if this is a sacred place. The Lord is sacred, not this place. He is worthy of your worship anytime, any place. Your worship is not to be restricted to a specific location as the calling of Abraham in pagan Mesopotamia proves. And in the case of Abraham, his subsequent travels affirm this great truth as an abiding principle that God was with Abraham and that he would be with his descendants wherever they were. As Stephen continues his defense, notice what he says about Abraham and his descendants, and then going back to Abraham's call of him. Verses 4 through 7. Then he, meaning Abraham, left the land of the Chaldeans, and he settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him moved to this country in which you are now living. That means Israel. He's speaking to the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. But he gave him, God gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect, that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, God says, I myself will judge And after that, they'll come out and serve me in this place. It's easy to get lost in these verses because it just sounds like a dizzying travelogue of comings and goings. First, we read that after his father died, Abraham left Haran and he came to the land of Canaan where God didn't allow him to own even a foot of land, but he promised at that time that all the land would someday be possessed by Abraham's descendants, even though Abraham at that time had no child. However, his descendants, God says, would not possess the land immediately. Why? Because they would first live as aliens, foreigners, in a foreign land, meaning, though it's not mentioned here, it obviously means Egypt, where they would be enslaved and mistreated for about 400 years. Then at the end of those 400 years, God would judge Egypt and return Abraham's children to the land of Canaan. Now that's quite a bit of moving around for Abraham and his descendants from Ur to Haran to Canaan to Egypt, then back to Canaan. So why does Stephen feel compelled to tell the Sanhedrin about all this traveling by Abraham and his descendants? Because it's the same point that he's just made about Abraham's call while living in Mesopotamia. That point being that God is not confined so that he can only be worshipped in one temple that exists in one city. What Stephen is saying is that long before the temple existed in Jerusalem, the Jewish people existed. And they worshipped God wherever they were. In Ur, in Haran, in Canaan, in Egypt. And back to Canaan. And the reason that they worship God and that God acted on their behalf, not forgetting or forsaking them, even when they were being mistreated for 400 years in Egypt, is because he had made a covenant with them to be their God and they his people. And that's why Stephen closes this section of his speech by telling us about this covenant. Verse 8. And he gave him, meaning God gave Abraham, the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. God made this covenant. We call it the Abrahamic covenant to bless Abraham 
and to bless his descendants. And he gave him circumcision as the sign and the seal of this covenant. God then reaffirmed this covenant that he made with Abraham, with Abraham's son, Isaac. And then later, with Abraham's grandson, Jacob. And then later, with Abraham's great-grandchildren, the 12 patriarchs, the 12 sons of Jacob. And thus, folks, you have the nation of Israel, the covenant people of God. And even while they were outside of the promised land, dwelling in Egypt, God was with them, and they worshiped him. And this was long before a temple ever existed in the city of Jerusalem. Listen, Stephen's message concerning God's dealings with Abraham and his posterity, it's quite profound because it's a message that reminds us that God must not be reduced by us to being in a specific location. As King David reminds us in Psalm 139, wherever we go in the universe, God is there. David said, Psalm 139 verses 8 through 10, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. Therefore, God is to be worshipped wherever we are. There is no building on earth that is sacred. Our worship of God is a matter of worshiping him in truth, with our hearts being right with him, not in a location. The God of glory revealed himself to Abraham while he was a pagan living in a pagan land. What about you? Has God revealed himself to you? If he has, then he has revealed himself to you in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus is the Lord of glory. Jesus is the God of glory. He is the God-man who died on the cross for sinners, paying the penalty for sin, the full penalty for sin. And he calls us to trust him as our savior, our deliverer. We are not to reject him as being the deliverer because salvation is only through him. And it's not a physical salvation. It is a spiritual, eternal salvation. If you have not trusted him, then you do not know this God of glory. But you can know him by recognizing your sin and how foul your sin is to a holy God. And then you repent of it. You turn from it while turning to Christ, trusting him alone as your Lord and Savior. Listen, you don't want to be like the men of the Sanhedrin, stubborn, resistant to the Holy Spirit. So humble yourself, admit your sin, turn from it, trust Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the speech that we have studied by Stephen. Lord, it's magnificent. It's not rambling. It's genius. It's your genius revealed through this man. And I pray that this truth will impact those of us who know you, that we would be careful, Lord, to make sure that we don't think that Sunday mornings are only time of worship. It's a time we come together with other believers to worship. But Lord, may you use this to impact us, to press us, to worship you throughout our day because you're worthy of it. To make sure we have precious times in the morning where we get up early and meet with you. 
throughout the day where we thank you, where we praise you, where we're conscious of you. Lord, in those spare moments of life where we're not engaged in some hard thinking, it's so easy for our minds to wander. Lord, it's so easy to wander to things we enjoy, sports, other activities, family, what we have to do. But help us to discipline ourselves in those moments to give you praise, to thank you, to offer up songs in our minds, perhaps even singing out loud to you. Lord, may we do exactly what scripture says to worship you. We realize you're not limited to this building. Sunday morning, Sunday evening, may your people be a people who exalt you throughout our day. And I pray for any here who may not know you, Lord. May you reveal yourself even this day to someone as the Lord of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, who calls them to salvation. This we pray in Jesus' name. We have come to the end of today's verse-by-verse broadcast. And as I mentioned at the beginning, we are going to have a quiz. So, question number one, who was Abraham's father? Okay, just a second. Don't everyone raise your hand at once. All right, how many of you said Terah? You would be correct, and you would receive a gold star. However, I don't have any. Question two, who was Abraham's brother, and what was the first town they lived in after leaving Ur? Did you say Haran? Correct on both counts. Again, you'd receive a gold star if I had one. Okay, enough of our quiz. Did you see how important to Stephen's defense it was for him to explain the history of the Jewish nation? We have more we will learn about that and many other aspects of Stephen's defense before the Sanhedrin. So please join us for our next verse-by-verse broadcast.